The Bitcoin Layer is proud to be sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices has the beautiful Passport hardware wallet. Make sure you get your Bitcoin into self-custody today. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and today we bring back our TBL Energy correspondent, Max Gagliardi. Max, thanks so much for coming back. Nick, thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Of course. Max, I want to start with the petrodollar. There is a lot of news surrounding the transition away from a U.S. dollar-based global oil trade. Now, to give credit to the news and the arguments, we do have China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia continually in the news and making moves toward a more non-US dollar-based settlement of Saudi oil, Russian oil and gas, uh, with the Chinese being on the purchasing side of this trade. We have, with that, we want to balance the fact that there is 90% of the petro trade that still exists in dollars. So you wrote a great thread about this today. Walk the audience through what are your thoughts on the future of the petrodollar? Is it going away or is it here to stay? Well, it's a really fun topic of discussion and there's a lot of great content out there on it. Uh, there's a bunch of people in the gold world or the Bitcoin world that really like this idea. It's a very seductive idea that the US dollar is failing and that you know the petrodollar could be going away. Uh, there's books like the Mandibles. I don't know if you guys have read that one where they talk about going to this uh, commodity-backed currency and kind of the collapse of the US. So. These ideas have been out there and been floated around a lot of blog posts, a lot of people writing about it. I think it's important to distinguish between kind of the theoretical here and what could happen. And there's clearly, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. A lot of times uh, these phenomenons are going on where these other countries are talking and aligning uh, and not just in the energy world, but also economically. Uh, certainly the war in Russia has accelerated, excuse me, in Ukraine with Russia has accelerated these talks uh, out of necessity with Russia being one of the largest energy producers in the world and then being largely set out, shut out via sanctions uh, to the Western world and then them going uh, kind of towards the east, whether it be China, uh, working with the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, some of the other Middle Eastern countries, and as well as India, and looking at you know strengthening those ties uh, with the energy trade. With that, there's been a lot of rumors around uh, you know China approaching Saudi Arabia and saying, you know, will you price... Uh, oil and yuan. And I think there's a big you know, distinction here between pricing something in a currency and trading in that currency. It's one thing to trade, uh, you know, Russia to force people to use rubles to, to buy their energy uh, or Chinese to buy it in yuan. It's another thing to price it uh, in a currency. And so the dollar, like you said, is 90%. This has been going on since uh, the 1970s. I believe it was 1974, somewhere in that time frame. And it's really been a pact between the US and the Middle East and there's a lot of reasons for this, um, but it's it's here and it's been around for a long time. I think going into the future, the world is very entrenched uh, with the U.S. dollar. And you can read through some of that thread. You guys have actually also put out some really good pieces on this from a financial perspective. I think there was one uh, basically along the lines of the death of the dollar is kind of exaggerated. I think that these are interesting thought experiments, but there's a lot of reasons why the U.S. Uh, is the reserve currency. And it comes back to this relationship with the Middle East to start. But now, you know, the world is dependent on the dollar. 
Uh, and the U.S. has a lot of strength that China does not have. I mean, yes, China is now the second largest economy. Uh, their military strength is growing. But the U.S. is still uh, the pretty clear strongest military in the world, the strongest economy in the world. We're also the largest uh, oil and gas producer in the world. And so if you want to look at a reserve currency and what people want to base it on, I think there's a lot of fundamentals that the U.S. has um, that make it a very strong choice, regardless of what the BRICS countries want to do. I don't want to downplay the significance of those countries. I think of the BRICS countries, it's about 40 something percent of the world's population. Um, I also think it represents around 15, 20 percent of uh, the world's economies. And so it's a significant block of the world. And I know there are many countries that don't like the weaponization of the dollar and what they, you know, what the U.S does with it right which is he can print as much money uh we don't create things anymore we can use it uh to our advantage in a number of ways whether that be even militarily or economically and so there's lots of countries that i think would want to get off of it but one of the uh, lines i put in the thread was it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't know and i tend to believe that saudi arabia and china trust each other less than we trust them if that makes sense so i know there's a lot there to unpack and we can dive into each one of the specific topics if you want to go into detail in it. But I think it's, again, to recap, it's a seductive idea. It's fun to talk about. The U.S. dollar does have problems. Uh, the U.S. economy, or the, excuse me, the the deficit that we're running in the debt um, could be a major problem. There's a lot of guys like Luke Groman that put a lot of great stuff out there about this, and you guys as well. And I love reading that stuff. But at the end of the day, I think that it is a little premature to call for the end of the petrodollar to summarize it. But happy to dive into any one of the individual topics there. Yes. And so now we can get into the nuance that if it's a yay or nay situation, we're talking about a petrodollar that is going to exist in its current state for decades to come. Just given the outlay of the way that money moves around the world and the way that oil is settled in terms of dollars around the world. But at, like you're saying, we shouldn't discredit the idea that there are pockets of trade that are going away from the dollar and are trying to go away from the dollar. There's a huge portion of the population. If you just think about China, India, and Russia as neighbors in that part of the world, if that trade starts to go toward Yuan in terms of actually settling the trade, then we are talking about a marginal shift, but it doesn't mean that the global direction of oil trade is materially affected anytime soon. So let's go to Russia and the uh, explosion of the Nord Stream pipeline, the delivery of gas from Russia to Europe. And what do you think is going on there in the next couple of years? What is Europe going to do without Russian gas? And how does you know the US um, and its involvement in the Nord Stream pipeline affect you know the situation over there? Well, prior to the war in Ukraine, Europe was getting about 40% of its natural gas from Russia. Uh, even prior to the Nord Stream explosion, they were still getting a significant amount. And I think that number is about 20% of what it used to be. So it's still, there's a material amount. They actually didn't put sanctions on Russian natural gas because they couldn't, because they needed it. So, but, you know, it was kind of like a, a crossing the Rubicon type of analogy here, where we basically, when the Nord Stream pipeline got blown up, uh, Russia has now said they've mothballed that project. I don't, you know, I, I don't see any chance of it coming back. And I think between now, and I want to differentiate between now and when this conflict in Ukraine resolves, 
whether that's Ukraine wins or Russia wins, we can look at that time period and then we can talk about after that time period. And there's spec it's more speculation after that time period. But I think between now and then, clearly Europe is moving away from Russia. They're trying to get as much LNG as they possibly can. They're building new LNG import import facilities. They're building new pipelines uh, to facilitate the spread of that LNG uh, once it's converted back into natural gas across uh, the continent. And they're looking to places like the U.S., Australia, uh, Qatar in the Middle East, and uh, North Africa, Algeria, and other countries that are supplying a lot of that LNG. Uh, the problem is, is that there's a lot of other people that want LNG as well. The Asian countries, I believe, are about three-fourths of total LNG demand uh, in terms of what they're trying to soak up of the global uh, supply that's out there. And the other thing is that the nature of these contracts are relatively long-term. So if you're you know, a national buyer uh, or a large buyer, you may go out and enter into a 10-year or 20-year agreement to purchase the LNG. Um, there is some spot traded and float supplies available. But it has really been a race between Europe to procure the supply and bring it in. But they're competing with the likes of China, who are buying a whole lot of it. And so in the interim, LNG seems to be the answer. They're obviously going to push a lot of renewables. They've already been doing that. They're going to continue to push intermittent energy sources to the extent that they can. Uh, there's a lot of government subsidies involved with that. I think the wind industry over there has been struggling. Um, you know, the nuclear side, they should be doing more of. They're not. But right now, in the interim, it's going to be uh, a lot of LNG to meet the gap between what Russia was providing. I think after Russia, this conflict resolves, there's a couple of ways it could play out. One is that maybe something happens to Putin. Maybe, you know, they retreat out of Ukraine under a scenario where, you know, maybe they keep part of Ukraine and they, there's some kind of peace treaty there. Or maybe somehow Putin is no longer in power and there's a new regime that's in that is less uh, you know, hungry for war and that wants to create peace. Under that scenario, um, I think it's reasonable to assume that you know, Europe could continue buying natural gas from Russia, maybe not as much as it used to because of, the, because of the threat, but there is a scenario that plays out where into the future, they continue to rely on Russia for some portion of that natural gas. Under the scenario where Ukraine falls or where Putin continues the war machine going, I think it's gonna be uh, very difficult for Europe to put much dependence whatsoever on uh, on Russia, just given given the nature of the hostility that that uh, that they're putting forth into the world, so that's kind of the scenarios as I see them today. Um, but happy to answer any questions on that. So let's now bring it back from Russia to Saudi Arabia because the relationship between Russia, Saudi, and China is, I think, the focal point of all of these stories about the petrodollar and the potential fall of it, or just the disruption to the dollar in general, which you and I both agree, it's a little premature and it misses the the broader context of the fact that we still have 90% of the world's trade, uh, oil trade settling in dollars. So bringing back to Saudi Arabia, you mentioned LNG, the consumption of LNG in Asia is going up and it's consistent. Uh, the technologies around turning gas into the liquid form and then back for the consumption are improving around the continent Europe. You are involved in the gas business here in the United States. So explain to us how Saudi Arabia with its oil reserves is put on the spot here on the global scene with the development of natural gas 
infrastructure and consumption. Said in another way, if LNG or natural gas itself can come from places that are not named Saudi Arabia, how does this affect the whole thesis that Saudi underpins the transition away because we are so dependent on oil? And I understand that we can't go just switch tomorrow to an oilless future and just depend on natural gas. I fully understand that. And there's a there is a huge uh, infrastructure and demand for oil and crude that will continue on for the next decades um, without a doubt. So just talk to us, separate gas and oil for us, and talk about the future of natural gas, geopolitically speaking. I think let's just bifurcate it into oil and gas, like you said. And I think if you look at the last 10 years, uh, the Middle East and Saudi Arabia is kind of the leader of OPEC has been caught off guard. I believe they're not off guard anymore, but really just with the rise of shale uh, oil and gas. And, you know, the U.S. had been on a trajectory that was flat to declining. And then we came on with just enormous amounts of new oil and gas production. It's the largest energy creation just in terms of the total energy that we produce from a supply standpoint that anyone's ever brought online. It was just a massive amount of new production coming on. And that caused a lot of changes in in the world. I mean, it went from, you know, OPEC being the swing producer to now you kind of look at uh, places like the Permian Basin and uh, West Texas is kind of being that role. And they have basically, you know, waged a war, a price war over the last 10 years to try to subdue the price via flooding the market with new supply to tamper down the U.S. producers. And we're unique here because it's mostly a privately driven business versus where these OPEC countries, a lot of it's nationalized. And so Saudi and the U.S. have had tensions from that standpoint. Uh, you know, Biden immediately went to them and asked them to increase their production. They increased production when they wanted to hurt us. Uh, whenever we were you know, taking up global uh, share of the total market share is the word I'm looking for. And then whenever uh, prices got really high this last year and we were heading into the midterm elections, they cut production to try to spike prices uh, to hurt, you know, maybe hurt their political rivals. It seems like uh, the Biden administration in Saudi Arabia don't have a great relationship. So there's definitely tension there. In Russia, you know, it's almost the same uh, same thing that's happened with natural gas. So Russia really had... Europe completely hooked and dependent on Russian natural gas. There was a concerted effort by Germany and some of the other countries to further deepen that tie under what I believe is the misguided view that that would connect the countries and maybe prevent something like a Ukraine happening, you know, tie them together economically. Clearly, that didn't play out. Uh, in fact, it, you know, it put them at the mercy in a lot of ways of Russian energy. Russia did not like the shale revolution and the fact that all this U.S. natural gas was coming online. In fact, there was many uh, unsubstantiated and some, I believe, substantiated uh, rumors that Russia is funding a lot of the green initiatives around the world. And they've tried to push a lot of money into anti-fracking, anti-oil uh, you know, and gas, basically pro-ESG type narratives. Some people will argue that, but I think there's been some pretty good evidence that's come out that's shown that a lot of Russian money has flown into, uh, flooded into those initiatives and Russia didn't like it, and they especially didn't like it whenever we started building out the LNG capacity that we started building. And this started happening about six or seven years ago when it really started coming online. And every year we brought on bigger and bigger tranches of LNG, which has effectively connected us to the world in a way that prior to this, we were not connected. And not only were we not connected, we did not have uh, the amount of supply because natural gas was on a similar trajectory as oil in the U.S., 
whereas we were drilling these conventional reservoirs and thought that it was on a flat to declining um, trajectory. So both of those nations uh, have been at odds with the U.S. from an energy standpoint, and we, but we continue to be, uh, you know, a massive player in the energy space. We are the largest producer. Um, we may not be there forever because it is a finite resource and there are some rumblings of inventory issues and things like that in some of these basins. But that's some of the dynamics that have been playing out. And, and I'll stop there and, uh, and answer any other questions on it. Yeah, I, that's a great answer. And so t- explain to us what you mean by connected to the world. With with regard to the United States and LNG, and I think you're talking about the facilities that are being right. built out. So what do you mean by connected to the world versus not connected and compared to oil, I think is the other side. Yeah, it's important. I mean, the transportation aspect between oil and gas is very different. You know, gas is typically transported through pipelines. Uh, it's obviously in a gaseous state. And to get it into a way where we can transport it across the ocean, we have to cool it down very, very cold to the point where it gets liquefied. And then we can fill these big uh, shipping uh, cargoes with uh, cargo ships, LNG cargo with net liquefied natural gas. And that allows us to move it around the ocean. Whereas oil, you know, you can put it in a tanker, you can put it on a train, you can put it in a ship, uh, you can store it in above ground storage. You know, the storage for natural gas is difficult. It's typically stored underground in large uh, salt dome caverns, which are expensive um, to build and cannot be placed in every geographical region. You have to have certain regions that can have these. And so natural gas, just by its nature of being a gaseous um, hydrocarbon, it's just harder to transport, harder to store, whereas oil, it's been much easier. So the oil market's typically uh, always been a pretty well-connected market around the world uh, since the you know Industrial Revolution and everything got built out. Uh, it's been a world market where you've been able to ship it around uh, with with ships. And whereas with natural gas, we didn't have that infrastructure. And so there's multiple pieces. There's uh, the piece to get the gas from the wells to the LNG facilities, and you have to get it liquefied, put it on ships. Then you have to take it into an uh, import facility that has to turn it back into natural gas and put it back into pipeline. So there's just a lot more infrastructure involved that's needed for natural gas. But once that infrastructure is built, that now is becoming more of a global and interconnected market. And so prior to the last, call it six, seven years, natural gas in the U.S. was very much an independent price, independent of the world prices. You could see Asian prices going crazy. You could see Europe prices uh, going crazy. And the U.S. was basically self-contained. I mean, we may have $2 gas here and they may have $15 gas over there. Now there's very much an arbitrage uh, around the world. And it's basically the spread between the cost to transport it And a lot of the LNG contracts are linked to the price of oil. And so it's just become this much more interconnected world where now natural gas has a way to get to the world stage. And with these geopolitical things like what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, it's going to cause even more of that infrastructure to get built. And it's going to rapidly accelerate the timeline uh, to get that done because these import export facilities, even in a even in a friendly regulatory environment, can take years to build. And in an area like Europe, who's been very open about transitioning away from oil and gas, uh, you can put up regulatory hurdles pretty easily to drag these projects out for long periods of time, which we're actually seeing the opposite of that happening now. We're seeing them expedite these projects. So it is a lot of infrastructure to build, but because of these geopolitical tensions, uh, that infrastructure is being accelerated and natural gas is becoming more of a worldwide price commodity where all these markets are now linked. Passport is the Bitcoin hardware wallet you already know how to use. With a gorgeous design and familiar interface, Passport makes it easier than ever to self-custody your Bitcoin. No more sitting at your computer and squinting at tiny screens. 
Passport seamlessly connects to your phone, empowering you to quickly view your balance and move Bitcoin in and out of cold storage. See what best-in-class Bitcoin storage feels like at thebitcoinlayer.com foundation and receive $10 off with a promo code BitcoinLayer or check it out in the description. So Europe is accelerating uh, natural gas projects and infrastructure. What about the United States? Talk about the uh, industry itself and then from the government's perspective, whether either on the regulatory side or on the subsidy or uh, communication side. I, we've done a lot of it in spite of the government. Now, people will argue with me and say the Obama administration was fairly friendly to the industry. They talked a big game. They didn't actually do as much as they said. Uh, Trump was obviously pro-American energy. The Biden administration has done a little bit of both. You know, Biden is an old school politician. He realizes that if gas prices at the pump uh, get to a certain level, it is really bad for them uh, from a political standpoint. And so I switched over to gasoline there, but he also realizes that, uh, you know, heating bills, uh, electricity bills, things like that matter and inflation's raging in the US. And so a lot of what they have said versus what they've done, there's a little bit of a disconnect. Uh, he's certainly been releasing a lot of oil from the SBR. So it's not like he doesn't want oil to come onto the market. He's also gone to countries like Saudi Arabia and effectively begged for more supplies. He's been in talks with Venezuela, Iran, a lot of bad actors. It seems like they want to be very tough on the U.S. in particular. So, for example, you know, they'll go out of their way to make permitting on federal lands difficult or to not approve certain projects or to try to, you know, let pipeline or infrastructure projects get bogged down in the courts here. Yet overseas and these, you know, international players, uh, they're cozying up to them saying produce more. And so, it's a little bit disturbing from that perspective because it should be, hey, look, American energy, we should support this. If you're anti-fossil fuels, be anti-fossil fuels. Just be it totally. Don't be like pro-foreign fossil fuels, but anti-American. Um, and so you've seen a little bit of that. But I think that like this Inflation Reduction Act has been a huge windfall uh, for the green or sustainable energies, whichever however marketing term you want to classify them. Uh, a lot of money is getting put into these technologies. And it's not just wind and solar, it's batteries, it's um, home efficiency things like heat pumps or insulation. There's just a ton of subsidies and tax credits coming in uh, for solar, wind, and all these adjacent industries into that side of it. And there's very little, if any, going into the oil and gas side. There's been a few things like they approved this Willow project up in Alaska. I still think it has a long ways to go before it actually produces. Um, but there is a lot of recoverable barrels up there, and that was a shock and a bit of a blow to some of the green advocates. So I'm not saying they've done everything that's been negative, but the rhetoric has clearly been negative, and the industry, I think, has responded to the rhetoric with a less certain regulatory environment. So it makes producers less likely to grow. I mean, you know, the economics of the price of oil and gas are going to drive a lot of their activity. But at the same time, we work with a lot of companies that have leases on federal lands. And if you have leases on federal lands, there's a lot of uncertainty. You can get a permit to drill the well, but they may not give you a permit to lay the pipeline, things like that. They play a lot of games behind the scenes. So they say, oh, there's 9,000 permits. Why won't you drill? And I know personally people here uh, locally that are companies that have drilled, for example, 30 wells and they can't bring them to the market because they won't give them access with the pipeline to get to it. So anytime there's this hostile stance towards the industry, it creates uncertainty. And that uncertainty uh, dampens activity levels. And so there's a lot we could get into with the U.S. And, and the policies going on. But I would characterize it as 
the Biden administration has been mostly negative. They've done some things that were slightly positive, but for the most part, the rhetoric has been pretty anti-U.S. energy. And, and point blank, do you think that that is a material hindrance to the U.S. leadership in oil and gas production, or do you think, um, or do you think it's not a a big enough one and just maybe a hurdle instead? It it, it, it is a hindrance. I mean, it is right. I mean, yeah. we have a lot of oil and gas either you know offshore or, for example, in Alaska and on federal lands. I mean, federal lands make up a non significant portion, or I mean, a significant portion, it's not insignificant in terms of the total mix. And to the extent that we opened up uh, offshore leases, and people had the regulatory certainty and clarity to know that they could go develop that we could we could increase our oil production. Uh, but that being said, it's not all the government's fault. I think that if the government was more pro industry, if they were giving incentives, if they were trying to you know, make the regulatory environment easier, if they were getting uh, the main thing would be like new infrastructure, new pipelines for gas, uh, if we could ever build a new refinery in America, it's been since the 70s since we built one. Uh, we can't get that done. It's effectively illegal. Uh, we can't open up new mines. So if you want to talk about the energy transition, they won't let us do that either because it'll get hung up in the courts for 10 or 20 years. You'll never get an economic project done. So the government is interesting because we talk a big game about this energy transition, yet the policies that they're putting in place are making the cost of energy more expensive, which makes it, in my opinion, harder to transition. And then also on the energy transition side, we're really not a leader on any of the raw materials or the manufacturing of these things. So we can't produce the raw materials to make the solar panels and to do all the things that the batteries and the things we need because mining is effectively illegal in the U.S. I mean, it's not illegal, but to permit a new mine, it might as well be. Uh, it's not economic. And then on the manufacturing side, you know, China pretty much does everything. So I think that these policies matter. And I think that if we wanted to if we had the political will, we could even be more of a leader, not just in oil and gas, but I'll even say in the green side as well. If that's really what they want to do, there's things we could do here to make us better at that. So these things matter. Where are the leading voices coming from for the the correct policies in your view um, at the U.S. federal level? That's tough. It's hard to say. I mean, I think mostly the Republican side of the aisle. I mean, look, everybody in politics, I'm going to caveat this answer by saying everybody's got special interests. Everybody's got their constituents and everybody has somewhat of an agenda. But if you want to look at the leaders, it's mainly these energy producing states like Texas or Oklahoma. Uh, the Typically, the states that are red, there's some purple states um, like Colorado that has a ton of resources, but they're really getting hamstrung by the by the state level politics. Uh, New Mexico as well has a ton of resources and they're getting hamstrung by the state level politics or more of a purple state. Uh, the Northeast is largely purple, but, you know, Ohio and Pennsylvania just in West Virginia, massive resources. I know Manchin in West Virginia has tried to bring some rational discussion to the table. It's hard to find. You almost need to find someone on the other side of the aisle like a Manchin who can you know, be the swing vote and try to sway things. But typically, it's these states that have the resources and know how important it is to their local economy uh, and then voice. And then they tag on with that and talk about how it is, how important it is to national security and things of that nature. The states that don't have these natural resources uh, largely are either indifferent or it just falls on a it falls right on the political divide in terms of the different parties. So um, the, typically, it's those states, like I mentioned, that have the energy that are being more vocal about this. But at the federal level, it is almost always just whether it's a Republican or a Democrat president. And then, you know, the Republicans are typically supporting American energy and Democrats are, you know, 
negative on it and want to switch to uh, some alternative form. And if you'll allow me to ask a more philosophical and existential question, just on the pol on the politics side of things, what do you say to the arguments that look at the way that China Russia is able to implement policy because it's un it's done unilaterally and the U.S. is behind because we're bogged down in left-right politics and, uh, you know, three branches of government. Just talk to us about how you feel, you know, you're an American. How do you feel about the American political landscape as it exists today and, and how it affects your industry? Obviously, in Bitcoin, we have certain um, attitudes toward the regulatory framework, but in your industry, it's decades worth of laws and regulations and court cases, but you still must feel some sort of pride in the way that we have a rule of law and uh, due process. So if you have any thoughts there, we'd love to hear. Really interesting question. I think about this a lot. I love history, love studying history. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating to me is Greek history because we have such a good record of it. And it's also fascinating because of, you know, their experimentations with democracy and a lot of the problems that they had uh, were tied to democracy. I mean, they did a lot of things that probably weren't at the best interest of the nation state at the time. But, you know, when you get a, a demagogue in the, you know, standing up and being able to give a big speech and rile up the crowd and then they vote for something that may not be in the best interest of the people because it was a popular vote or populist vote. I think another interesting, so I think that's a cautionary tale uh, for the U S it's like, we're, you know, putting, and that's, it's also a cautionary tale for people that want to get rid of the electoral system and go to this kind of mob rule, um, absolute democracy. I mean, most people don't have the facts. I mean, quite frankly, to make these decisions on these very nuanced topics. And so I think a representative uh, democracy like we have is a good middle ground there but if you look at the history of world leaders, typically they fell into two categories of traits that they had to have to be a world leader. And that was competence and, and a high degree of violence. Typically, most world leaders were very competent and very violent, because if you weren't, then you weren't going to become Genghis Khan. You weren't going to become uh, Julius Caesar. You weren't going to become Alexander the Great or name another you know historical leader that uh, built an empire, you had to be highly, highly competent and highly violent uh, to be somebody that made it to the top. And I'm sure that's not the case for every world leader over the course of history, but that was kind of the general characteristics that you had to have. And if you look at the modern world and you look at these leaders, um, look at China, uh, look at Russia, look at uh, Saudi Arabia, they're, they're pretty violent leaders and pretty, and they're fairly competent because if they weren't competent, they wouldn't have made it. Putin would have made it where he's at. Z wouldn't have made it where he's at. He's got an incredible story. Uh, the Saudi prince is a very ruthless guy as well. I mean, we saw what he did to that journalist. There's a lot of other things. They have a high degree of competence and a high degree of, of violence as a trait, as a leader. So if you talk about philosophy and then you look at the U.S., I would argue that uh, we don't have very many competent leaders in both sides of the aisle. And we don't, and they're certainly not that, I mean, you could argue some of them have a propensity for violence because of the, uh, you know, in, uh, military industrial complex and all the perpetual wars that we seem to find ourselves in. So maybe there is some of that there, but uh, I don't think that, you know, it's a merit system or a competence system like uh, just because people get to vote for who they are. And I think in the U.S., what we've really been bailed out is some, you know, some personal freedoms and liberties that give us a lot of advantages. And even back to the petrodollar conversation, it's like, do you want to trade in, you know, yuan where it's, you know, China can basically decide 
that it's a very opaque marketplace. Uh, you might not be able to redeem those. You, you know, it doesn't have the liquidity or, you know, the dollar, which is, yes, the Fed can monkey with things all day long, but there's a lot riding on it. And it is a more open and free market type of currency. And I think if you go back to even on the energy side, look at personal property rights. I mean, that's basically why we're, we've been so successful is that the people have the right to own the minerals. Like most of the land that's being development, developed is owned by a farmer or by a company or by an investor, somebody that's, you know, owns those mineral rights and can produce those. And it's the ability to have uh, the personal property rights, which is what fostered the innovation that allowed us to have the shell revolution. And so even though democracy is not perfect in terms of decision-making and leadership, I think the constitution and you know the rights that we have in the U.S. has really give it, given us a more free society relatively. I mean, there's still a lot of like, you know, not free stuff and they want more. They'd love CBDCs. They'd love a lot of things if they could get them. I think in some ways they may be, uh, they view China and some of their policies as I think some of the politicians here would love to emulate that. But we have protections in place with the way this country was set up. And I think that's positioned us well um, to hopefully withstand these things uh, into the future. If you want to talk about philosophy, that's kind of my, my rant on that one. Thank you for entertaining the little detour there. And I want to shift gears before we run out of time. Yeah. Let's talk about the economy and how you see it today. You are in the real estate business. You are in um, the uh, rental property business. You're in the de- uh, real estate development business. So talk to our audience, maybe just remind them a little bit about what you do on the real estate um, and, and, and plug your firm and, and what you're working on right now. And then give us a sense if you have any on the beat of the economy based on what you're seeing in the real estate sector. Yeah, definitely. So our company, we're primarily doing like, it's mostly kind of fun, uh, vacation rental type stuff. Now we used to do residential homes. I didn't want to be a landlord and mainly it was to try to invest in our thesis, uh, back in 2019 when I started doing real estate was, you know, interest rates are low. And then when, uh, COVID hit, interest rates got really low and it just seemed kind of like a short the dollar play and uh, and have hard assets underpinned by debt. And that was a very, it, that thesis panned out really well. Like you basically couldn't have bought anything in 2020 and not made money unless it was just something really dumb on the real estate side, just because the money printer go burr and then the low rates. But we then decided, hey, if we're gonna do something, we'll do something fun. So we've been doing these uh, vacation rental properties here in Oklahoma where I live. And it's just, it's a, it's a fun investment. It makes money. It's kind of like, quasi hospitality. Um, so I enjoy it. And, uh, so that's what our, our firm does. And, uh, and the development that we're doing is called mountainforkresort.com. So you can check that out, but there's a lot of interesting things at the macro level, uh, with real estate, real estate is a very big, uh, topic because it's just such a huge portion of the U S economy. And it's not just the real estate itself. It's all the other service industries and things that it, that drive off of real estate. So for example, um, store the storage business, the ser- service business, things like U-Haul, like renting a car, you know, th- so many things are driven off of like the churn of people moving homes or buying properties. And so the health of the real estate market, it drives a ton of other service industries across the economy. Um, it's a mass, I can't remember the percentage of what it, what it moves the needle, but it's big. And it's one of the most important ones in terms of what the Fed and other people uh, are probably worried about when it comes to contagion we spreading. Have at, we have it at 25% in terms of the housing sector right. um, a portion of the U.S. economy. And I don't believe that that includes all the ancillary services that you're talking about. So it's probably sure. more than 25. It's huge. And I think there's been some things that have happened in the last year that have been pretty earth shattering in real estate. I mean, number one, the obvious is the increase in rates and how rapidly uh, they moved up. 
especially given where they were at when they started. And it's one thing to go from like, you know, an 8% interest rate to a 12. Uh, it's another thing to go from like zero to, you know, a 5%. And they also, what's been interesting, and you guys talk a lot about bonds, is the spread between the 10-year treasury and the mortgage uh, and the average mortgage rate across the country. Usually that spread historically has been about 170 basis points. And I believe earlier this week, it was like up over 300 basis points. So the risk premium uh, to get a mortgage right now is very, very high. And that is um, probably a lot of these banks trying to hedge uh, duration risk around whether or not the Fed is going to continue hiking rates and not trying to get caught uh, in a situation where they're putting out products that have an inordinate amount of risk given where the risk-free rate is at. And so you've seen that spread blow out. I think that that spread will come in whenever we... Uh, Whenever we see that, you know, rates are going to be either held flat or start being cut. And at that point, I think you're going to see that spread collapse back down to closer to the historical average there, which is, is a really easy lever. Um, and there's things that the Fed can do to help the real estate market, like buying mortgage-backed securities and other things. They can signal to the market that rates have stopped rising or that they're going to fall in the future. And I think that'll cause those spreads to collapse. And it's a huge deal. Every one or 2% increase in the mortgage average mortgage rate has massive ripple effects. I mean, they're basically long duration, long duration bonds, right? So it's like they have massive ripple effects across this. And so that being said, that's kind of the backdrop of what's been changing. Uh, and then obviously the other thing is prices have gone way up. Uh, residential prices have gone way up. Um, you know, a lot of things out there have gotten very elevated. Like I mentioned, you couldn't have bought anything in 2020 and uh, unless it was just a really bad office deal, which we'll talk about that side of commercial here in a minute, um, like WeWork or something. But most things in the real estate uh, space have gone up. So prices have gone way up. Now rates have come way up. The one thing that I will caution to the doomsdayers around real estate is that the underwriting has been much stricter since 2008. I mean, way, way more intense than 2008. It's also, there's been a lot of rules put in place. And so, uh, you know, right now, even in the commercial space, which is under a lot of duress, I think the average delinquency is like, uh, like 0.7% uh, or half, you know, half of 1%. And to put that into perspective, whenever in uh, 09 and 2010, it was over 2% and it was held there for almost two years straight. So, in terms of the distress that we're seeing in terms of people defaulting on their loans, it hasn't really materialized. Doesn't mean that it won't. Uh, you know, commercial real estate is typically done with shorter duration. A lot of times they don't want to lock in longer, you know, longer term deals that amortize. They have balloon payments. Uh, it could be a two year, a three year, five year, seven year type note. And so there is, uh, you know, people that are having to go out and borrow more money. And then now they're going to have to have their assets reappraised and see whether they appraise. And if they appraise for less then they, depending on what the equity is in the deal, uh, they could be underwater potentially. But back to the underwriting standards, I mean, to do what we do on the uh, vacation rental homes, everyone you know likes to joke about the Airbnb bubble and everybody buying all these vacation things. But it's like, I mean, you need 30%, 35% down, maybe more in some cases, you need like a full uh, physical to get one of these things. I mean, they're checking your credit score. They check all, you know, whether you've, you know, basically they're going to look at everything that you have in your life. They're going to want you to personally guarantee it. And they're going to want you to come up with a lot of times uh, a third or more of the equity up front. So back compared to 2008, when people were getting money back at close, putting zero down, uh, you know, getting adjustable rate mortgages. That's the other thing is most of the debt, uh, at least on the residential side is fixed debt. Um, there is some variable in the commercial space, but a lot of that's fixed as well. And so 
I, you know, the doomsday predictions of like a 2008, it's just a lot different environment of, of how they've uh, decided to lend. But I think they're, the thing with real estate to remember is that it's all very regional specific, asset class specific. Um, you know, we saw the COVID cities are really getting hit. Like if you were a big COVID restriction city like San Francisco or New York, um, and you're in a certain type of asset class, like um, re uh, office space commercial, then yeah, I mean, you're, you could be in serious trouble depending on uh, the maturity of that debt, when it's due and what the terms are with it. Um, I think other areas like the Midwest, the Sunbelt states, uh, the South, uh, they're, some of those areas are booming. I mean, they've got areas where you can't find enough office space. Um, so it's it just, it's hard to make a blanket statement. There are going to be some big uh, issues with some of these commercial real estate portfolios, but I think that it's, it's not as easy to be like, hey, it's cataclysmic. Um, you know, everything's going to fail. There has been a report that came out from the NYU School of Business that said that uh, they do see office commercial real estate declining in value over time. And I think they threw out a pretty eye popping number, like 39% decline in value, which would represent at $450 billion or something in losses over the next however many years. It was a longer term time period. And their, their main thing from the study was like the work from home stuff, which is real. So I'll kind of stop the, the broad discussion there. I can answer any specific questions, but I would just caution people that uh, lending standards are higher than they were. Um, a lot of people have fixed interest rate mortgages. And I think that depending on geographics and asset class, um, there will be some stress, but I just don't know if it's going to be as broad and as bad as it was back in the uh, MBS debacle. In yeah, so we'll, we'll watch the real estate market, both on the residential and the commercial side battle the two forces, one being that, you know, with the relative advantage of being in the US, just from the rest of the world's perspective, there's always a demand for US real estate. And that keeps it keeps the market um, supported in a way that um, maybe it wouldn't be otherwise. And we have tight lending standards, we have high interest rates, and that should generally cause the market to slow down and have to digest you know, these new, more, um, more restrictive fundamentals on the borrowing side, we'll just have to see it unplay, uh, play out. Max, the last question I want to get your thoughts on. Um, I know you follow the news very closely. We have unemployment really at quite a low level. And the statistical releases from the government on the employment side are all showing a strong labor market. On the other side, we see companies like Apple, Accenture, Disney, laying off. I'm not talking about the more cyclical Amazon delivery workers um, and even the meta workers that were meta did a lot of overhiring, but companies that are less sensitive to the cycle um, are also laying off people. McKinsey laying off people today, I saw in the news. Tell, I mean, what is it that's going on with the news headlines on the firing side? versus just the statistical, um, just from your perspective on the macro side. Mm. It's interesting. I think that the tech stuff was due to happen. I mean, a lot of the tech hirings that they've done over the, the years have been a result of the easy money policies and the insane valuations for some of these companies. And in some ways, maybe it made sense to hire all those people for them because why not? You, you have this crazy valuation that's not grounded in the realm of reality. And so, uh, hire a gajillion people and now they're laying a lot of them off which you know they probably can't justify them being there 
the headlines rolling into other industries, like you mentioned, McKinsey and, you know, wherever the space, I know the real estate side has had a lot of layoffs, especially in the brokerage side uh, with people originating deals, things like that. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know the calculation probably as well as you guys do on how they come up with these uh, job statistics. I think that there's a lot of monkeying around that they can do there. You guys could probably speak to it more because you're looking at that data. But it feels today, at least where I'm at, that in this part of the world, and I'm in the South, or I guess like the Midwest, whatever you want to call it, Oklahoma, Texas is kind of uh, the general area that I'm in. It doesn't feel like a recession. It certainly with oil and gas, especially oil prices being higher and gas last year, these localized economies seem very strong. I, again, kind of point back to some of these uh, like COVID cities. I think some of these areas that were more exposed to, for example, the tech side in California, uh, they just seem to have be having a lot more issues, whereas these places where people generally wanted to move uh, have been doing a little bit better. And I think it's probably a combination of the uh, restrictions on the living stuff, but also the industries that are there and those industries are doing well. So we'll see. I mean, I think you really, I was only just getting out of college in 2008, but I knew how it felt because I was trying to get a job and it felt very uh, different than this feels. And it also was one of those things where you could see it in people's faces. And when you talk to people that, that things were bad, they were really bad in terms of the economy, like everybody you talk to, no matter what the industry was. And I just don't see that. So I know that there are layoffs accelerating, but um, restaurants are packed, you know, vacation spots are packed. Have you checked hotel prices lately, flights? I mean, everything is kind of like, I mean, even our stuff with the you know, uh, rentals that we have and we charge, you know, $1,500, $2,000 a night. And some of these cabins are booked, you know, a lot, 50% or more of the year. So there's people spending a lot of money. I think that maybe there's been a, uh, not enough appreciation of how much liquidity was put into the system. That was a lot. And people that never had more than $500 in their bank account were getting thousands of dollars of checks. Wealthy people got a lot of stimulus as well. So it just may take some time. Uh, for that to flush through the system. But right now, at least from the layman's perspective, from my on the ground view, it doesn't feel uh, like the recession's here, at least yet. Our legal uh, legal correspondent, Joe Carlosari, also noted that um, he was looking at statistics that say only about one third of the stimulus money was spent. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of firepower there. And we'll have to see we're, what we're noticing from the macro side is a dynamic in which credit uh, is contracting. And that has spillover effects that we, we can't see yet. And so that's what we'll be watching for. And we have to balance that as well with the spot statistics, which show that the US economy generally on the services side is still an expansion. And that's basically, I think what you're, what you're seeing is saying as well. Max Gagliardi, thank you so much for joining us again. This is our TBL energy correspondent. Max is involved in energy projects, and he's here to give us more insight on topics that are a little bit outside of the macroeconomic and Bitcoin realm. Max, just remind our audience where they can find you online and what to look for from, from your side. Yeah, thanks again, Nick, for having me. I always enjoy these. Um, it's Max underscore Gagliardi at Twitter. Uh, Max underscore Gagliardi at YouTube and the podcast is called Always Be Building. It is available on all the podcast apps and uh, yeah, come check it out. Thanks for joining us here at the Bitcoin Layer. Thanks. The Bitcoin Layer is proud to be sponsored by Foundation Devices. Go check out Foundation's beautiful new passport. This is a Bitcoin hardware wallet 
that is the easiest hardware wallet to use in the industry. It has a beautiful interface. It's open source. They have a great concierge service to get you set up. I know it can be a little intimidating to try to take Bitcoin into self-custody, but Foundation is there to hold your hand every step of the way. Go check out the passport and make sure you use Bitcoin Layer as your promo code for $10 off.